On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kumar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parent stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. To our loyal listeners, we apologize for the delay in releasing episode 50. As conferences come back online, we're excited to be able to get out and see people again, especially the patients and caregivers in the rare community. But it takes getting used to, and our calendars are still getting resettled. Unsurprisingly, at one of these conferences, I picked up COVID on a trip, and I had to take some additional time off. But we think this episode will be well worth the wait. First, Sonneth. I know Raghav had a birthday this week. How was it? Can you tell us about the celebration? Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Raghav turned four this year, uh, this week. We are really excited about that. Uh, I honestly did not know if this uh, was a milestone that would come for Raghav. I am incredibly grateful, thankful, and excited uh, that he turned four. And I'm uh, hopeful it's going to be many more birthdays uh, to celebrate for him. We had a, a small party at home uh, with about 10 people. Um, Raghav spent about three hours with everybody at the party. Uh, it's kind of nice where people would just come to him and sit right next to him, uh, hold his hand. Uh, and then they would do their talking with him or they would be talking to other guests uh, in, in the party and he would just be totally happy. Sometimes he would vocalize along with um, the folks around him. Uh, so it was, it was very participatory altogether. That was a lot of fun. It sounds great. And to have, you know, 10 people come and gather around you guys, I think that's fantastic. So these birthdays, as you said, you, you didn't expect that this would happen, right? You didn't know. Um, and so they must be really special for you and Ramya. Can you tell us about your reflections and feelings as you're kind of processing that day? Yeah, it's a very special time. Um, especially as we get close to the birthday, we have um, a lot of emotions flowing. Um, more uh, fueling the emotion are... Um, uh, Google Photos uh, showing 
past photos um, from previous years. And undoubtedly, you know, leading up to his birthday, it starts showing pictures of Ramya being pregnant and all the fun things we did while she was pregnant. And um, then like the hospital visits uh, after he was born and pictures of Raga being super little uh, and, and all those fun pictures. So uh, it, 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 right right like all through july our life you know starts slowly leading up to his birthday um, and with google photos these memories um we sort of are able to relive uh those few days that led up to his uh, his birth uh and so it's it's we have these mixed emotions of really um happy highs and also um unhappy lows um with you know, all the challenges that he has dealt with. Uh, so it's a, it's a very emotional time altogether. Putting on a birthday party is, is tiring and stressful to have the, the extra layer of those memories coming up and down. It, it's got to just be more tiring. It was. Uh, I don't think we've recovered from the tiredness yet. Um, everybody at home has been getting sick one after the other. Raghav got cold. Now I have cold, uh, Ramya had COVID uh, a, a few weeks prior to that. Yeah, it's been nonstop, some sickness or the other at, at our household. So I'm really hopeful in a few weeks, we will all be back to you know normal, healthy state. Well, you seem to have a little bit of a glow about you too, though. You may be tired, but you had to have this, you had the celebration. So it's wonderful. We're so happy for you. And I'm sure our listeners are as well. Let's transition though, and we've been talking, you know, offline for quite a while about talking about Open Treatments, the organization you started, and the work that you're doing. So, can you give us a very high glimpse of what Open Treatments is? Open Treatments Foundation started uh, on March 31st, uh, 2021. So, it's been about a year and a half since we started the foundation. Our uh, back then, uh, I started Open Treatments mainly because um, I felt like f folks like my son um, were left out of the biotech ecosystem. With just 10 patients worldwide, um, there are no companies uh, that is incentivized to build a treatment for Raghav. And this is the case for a lot of rare diseases out there. So I wanted to really understand these fundamental problems uh, that are plaguing our rare disease ecosystem and use software to solve some of these problems. And we started Open Treatments Foundation with the uh, mission to democratize and decentralize uh, gene therapy development. Uh, we, built a so we built a software platform that helps others build gene replacement therapies. Uh, the platform launched um, in March of 2021 and in about two months of existence, it was very clear that this was the wrong product to start with. Uh, then we went through a couple of pivots um, and landed at where we are today. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So your original problem that you were trying to solve, um, bringing gene therapy to families like yours, what was the idea? What was the problem we were trying to solve? What was the idea and why did you conclude it was probably the wrong direction to go at that time? The problem was, 
everybody, uh, every patient foundation uh, embarking on the gene therapy journey are redoing, reinventing the wheel. Uh, the process of building a gene replacement therapy is fairly straightforward. If it costs just $10,000, for example, you would have corner stores building gene replacement therapies. That's how uh, straightforward it is, the process is. But then with everything in science, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and you need very uh, detail-oriented uh, experts that can help you build the build the therapies for you uh, and the real risk comes in comes from the fact that you're delivering these drugs to patients which again requires a lot more uh, level of safety tests and so on what i wanted to do was give patient foundations a very clear roadmap um, to execute their gene replacement therapy connect them with the right experts that can help execute these therapies for them on their behalf but giving, with, with, with keeping, giving them control. And I also wanted to give these foundations access to some tools and also potentially funding to help build gene replacement therapy. I did build the first two pieces out, which is A, the roadmap, and B, um, access to experts. Uh, this was a software platform that we had built from scratch. All of the source code was open source um, as a part of a Linux Foundation project called RareCamp. Uh, we spent a lot of time validating if the problem was right, but we did not spend enough time validating if the solution was right. So the problem is real. Uh, patients are reinventing the wheel, and also patients are the drivers that are pushing gene replacement therapy treatments for a lot of rare diseases, um, and they needed help. So the problem was quite real. But unfortunately, the solution was the wrong place at the wrong time. My issue with solving fundamental problems is um, they need to eventually or visibly create a, um, a systemic change in the ecosystem. And so let's say if we built this platform out in all its glory, and if patient foundations started using them, uh, they would have a proof of concept gene replacement therapy built. But unfortunately, biotech companies will still not license these therapies and take them forward into clinical trials simply because there are not enough patients in these rare disease communities. So the real fundamental problem that would move the needle for a lot of people is identifying the number of patients that are there in each of the rare disease communities and showing them to the world. That, in my opinion, is uh, more fundamental and would hopefully solve uh, a lot of the problems that are plaguing the ecosystem right now. And once we have that piece, then a platform like what I started would make a ton of sense. I hadn't heard you told that story before. So the fact that you thought you had a solution that you could provide to people, but the, the problem was actually, the problem's there, but, but there's a different aspect to it, which is there's just not the volume until you all work together. And so now you're working on something where we're not looking at a rare disease, we're looking at rare diseases. And that's much different story because in the U.S. it's estimated that there's 30 million people who are affected by a rare disease. 
not to mention their families and the people around them. And so that's a, that's a big number. That's a number that captures people's attention. So tell me, how did you pivot? And I know you went to uh, Chan Zuckerberg to, to get some funding. I'd like to hear that story too. And, and I don't know which came first, CZI or the pivot? Actually, both. <laughs> I pivoted when having conversations with CZI. Um, and so I do this where I, I sort of keep tweaking my story and my narrative and my solution to fit the ecosystem around me. Um, and in this case, uh, I had already tweaked my story a little bit to fit the patient ecosystem uh, because I knew what problem I had to solve. I had already tweaked my story to fit within the biotech ecosystem, which is a consumer of um, you know patient demographic information. But then as I was talking to CZI, um, my initial, my rough cut of the, of the solution that I presented to them was, was way too big. Um, it included a lot of pieces that kind of sounded nice, uh, but then uh, as we were digging through the problems, it didn't quite make sense. Um, and so during my conversations with CZI, which we had several meetings, um, I had pivoted a couple of times along the way um, to arrive at this problem that I had finally written up as a proposal and submitted to them. Um, and I had actually pivoted after I had gotten the CZI grant as well um, because the problem was still too big and I wanted to solve a, a fundamental kernel of the problem that would then have a ripple effect um, that hopefully would, would allow a lot more people to grow uh, and unlock the RDCC ecosystem. And so the pivot actually happened while I was in the, in the conversation phases. Uh, and let me walk you through sort of what that pivot looked like. Can, can we stop a second, though? I want to hear the, the conversation phase. So when you approached CZI, it wasn't just like, here's my idea, yes or no. It was more of a, a collaboration with them to get to where you had something you could actually submit. Is that what, that what I heard? That's right. So we had multiple conversations with the, with the folks at CZI. And uh, initially, the conversations were never around uh, funding Open Treatments Foundation. Uh, the conversations were around the problem that uh, both I and CZI were collectively observing in the ecosystem. And as we talked through the problems, some of the solutions were apparent um, and we had to eventually work towards something that was fundable. I think that other organizations need to hear that, other parents, that working with a, a group like CZI isn't about funding first. It's about solving problems. And they've got a load of talent to bring to this. They've got resources that you can't even dream of because of their broad reach and and their fundamental funding. You know, they, they've got a lot of backing. And having that conversation, having those collaborations clarifies the problem. And now there's something you can actually take action on. That may not be how people expect to go into it. It's often, well, I, I put the application in and they, they gave me a no. Well, that didn't get you very far. Well, that's, that's the reality of it if you have a foundation that's, that's laser focused on one problem. Uh, open treatments, on the other hand, was not focused on one specific 
problem, but was focused on a very large problem space. Um, and so, for example, if CCI had said no to funding this particular proposal that I had, I would have probably pivoted to finding something else that was more fundamental, uh, right? That would that would align the current players and would, would allow me to sort of find a pathway to execution. Um, and that's that's sort of a difference between getting a, getting funding for open treatments, which was uh, basically a Swiss Army knife, and I could have approached any problem in the first place, uh, versus getting for funding for something like Cure GPX4, which is laser focused on one problem, and I would rarely deviate from that focus. I would not expect that you would stop, um, if you got to know. But what I'm actually trying to point out is that they want to be partners with people as they're talking through. That's the way they operate. And so I think that's a big learning for people. Let's talk about the project that you you finally settled on and you're taking forward. It's called Open Treatments Connect. The idea is to count the number of diagnosed patients uh, or patients diagnosed with rare diseases across the world and display them in a publicly accessible dashboard. It's kind of like a census, if you will, uh, but of uh, of patients that have gotten uh, their genetic diagnosis, there's a there's a lot of simplification that happened after I started execution. Um, first, I I don't have to define um, what a rare disease is. All I care about is diseases that have a genetic diagnosis. So if you walk into GeneDx or Invite or one of these genetic testing companies and they hand you out a diagnosis that says, well, you have disease A, B, and C because of a mutation in this particular gene, then you get counted. Um, and that's a significant simplification to the problem because no one really knows whether to put a disease in a rare category or not. And quite honestly, it doesn't matter because that, that whole terminology is quite arbitrary in my opinion. We are also focused on counting diagnosis of patients across the world, um, primarily because most rare diseases are, are too rare or too insignificant when it comes to uh, a particular country uh, but when you accumulate data across the world, then you might actually find a good number of patients that biotechs would be interested in uh, targeting. The last bit, and this is the most interesting bit from a technology standpoint, is we are going directly to genetic, genetic testing companies and having them share their data with us. But again, there is the HIPAA, GDPR, and privacy laws of the world that prevents them from sharing the data with us. And so we are building an anonymization framework um, that allows genetic testing companies to convert patients' first name, last name, date of birth into uh, an anonymized stream of zeros and ones. They will share the zeros and ones, only the zeros and ones with Open Treatments Foundation. We will take that data deduplicate if the same patient was present across multiple databases and then count and display the counts on this publicly accessible dashboard. And this technological piece is what makes uh, this project very unique um, because there is no way Open Treatments Foundation can benefit from this data beyond displaying the counts. We've essentially removed all of the value in the data that people 
that a genetic testing company would send us, um, except for what can be used for counting patients. Uh, and this is where I think um, I think about Connect as a durable social infrastructure. Uh, this is then more of a project that does census. Um, what I mean by this is, if you think about GPS and how everybody uses GPS ubiquitously all the time, uh, ask yourself the question, who is paying for it? There, are, there is no company that's charging you $9 per month to subscribe and use GPS. It's being run by the federal government. It started for a variety of reasons, uh, but it's now a standard that uh, everybody adopts and uses and is actually available for the benefit of humanity. And that is where I want uh, the Connect project to go towards. It has to be a piece of our social fabric. It has to be an infrastructure that is durable, that lives for hundreds of years. And it has to be an infrastructure that generates, um, that doesn't actually generate, hold value in itself, but generates value for others. In the sense that when we once we have the counts displayed, then it unlocks a whole slew of value that was never possible before. And the Connect project doesn't sort of claim um, uh, a chunk of the value back. It, it's only giving value out and it is not holding value inside or trying to grow itself big enough to get funded or be publicly acquired or whatever. And so that's where we think of Connect as a durable social infrastructure, um, which means I'm not in a rush to grow this fast. Um, I am really looking for resiliency. I'm looking for the right partners, the right people that can make this happen. I will also wait for the right time um, to, to, to kind of fish from this pond, right? Uh, and, and my focus is on making, the, making sure this is durable uh, and it stays as a social infrastructure and doesn't sort of get tainted later. The data that you will have beyond the anonymization, you'll have an account, here's a person with a particular mutation or, or disorder or what's what's the the other side of that um, so we'll take first name last name date of birth country of birth uh, those should be sufficient to identify a patient or deduplicate them across databases um, and then we will take in their uh, gene name um, or a code um, that uh, ha that 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 creates a diagnosis in the first place, and then we'll have some sort of diagnosis code as well. So we'll we'll take a gene gene ID and a, and a diagnosis or disease ID. And nothing else around that. So you're not going to go back to the country. You're not going to go back to any of that. You're just going to say, here's the people in the world with that. So you'll be able to to just show the raw numbers, the raw prevalence globally. Correct. This. Actually, this is less of prevalence. This is more of incidence. Um, incidence. But incidence. the cool part about incidence is if you let it run for long enough, you basically get prevalence. So if you add incidence of every year over time, that's your prevalence, right? And so if you assume that um, rare diseases um, are very early in their diagnostic journey, then there would be more patients that get diagnosed next year than they got diagnosed this year. Which means um, if we start now in about five years, we will basically have a 90% a 
accurate prevalence numbers uh, that stay stable over time by just adding up incidences. It seems like a daunting task. No one knows the real number now. No one knows even the number of disorders that we're talking about. And you've kind of gone past that and said, if it's a genetic disorder, we'll count it. Don't worry about rare or typical. Um, so That's right. So we, we don't, this is a, a problem that I'm not solving here, um, which is associating a genetic mutation to a disease. And that's a hard problem. And that problem or that mapping keeps changing over time. Uh, and that mapping is sort of determined by experts. Um, you might have a disease uh, that then explodes into 16 different subtypes in the future based on what experts determine the right mapping should be. And, and therefore, the data that we produce um, is in the rawest form very valuable for a bioinformatician or a biostatistician um, to go estimate prevalence and sort of give you those those higher order numbers that would be valuable from a policy standpoint. Um, but I am not solving that piece that connects a gene to a disease or a disease to a larger group of diseases or collection or, or sort of combine them into categories like a rare cancer or whatnot. All I care about is this person's got mutation in this gene and that muta mutation is either pathogenic or not. Um, and based on that, we will uh, we will display that that total count on a dashboard. Then then other people would go build more flavors of of data on top. It, it's very interesting because you said you simplified the problem, and it really is. This is as simple as you can get when you're when you're collecting data or counting incidents of something. And I don't mean incidents with a T. Um, not with a C. And um, we're, we're just counting them up because we want to know how many there are. What are your thoughts on how people will layer data on that that will unlock that value? What, what do you think they're going to do with it? There are a lot of ways this can go. The first and the most obvious is um, shining a big spotlight or a floodlight on our underdiagnosis rate. If you start looking at diseases uh, that through mathematics um, are estimated to have a certain prevalence numbers and by counting are showing up to be say 10x less than what your prevalence estimates are, uh, then that shows under diagnosis gap very clearly, right? Undisputably. Then you could take that data over to your your policymakers and have them and have advocate for newborn screening. I think that would be the first benefit of this data uh, that I think people would uh, would do because that has a significant impact onto the bottom line. Uh, the second, and I think it's a it's a little bit more of a decentralized uh, version of the same problem, which is if you have a disease community, um, say GPX four. Um, and you see that there are only 10 patients that have gotten their diagnosis and a bunch of patients that you know of have really not gotten their genetic testing done, but sort of think that they might have this disease, then you might then go persuade them to actually get the genetic testing uh, done to, uh, to increase this count that you see on this dashboard. And so this dashboard now um, is a public counter uh, that gives people the drive to go get more genetic testing done. 
Uh, and this could be adopted by um, health, health tech startups. This could be adopted by biotech companies um, and whatever to, to actually go advocate people to go get more genetic testing. Uh, if whether insurance would use this data or not is a different question, but I would argue that they might um, because there are a lot of benefits of knowing which diseases are, are prevalent in the population that you care about or you serve today. Um, and so you can create different plans and benefits accordingly. Um, if you knew that you have your, your, as an insurance provider, if you knew that your top complex disease population are say Angelman syndrome, and half of those population that you serve don't really have a proper genetic diagnosis, then you can start offering subsidized or, or free or, or an easier path to genetic testing, which would then increase the counts up on this dashboard, will also benefit your bottom line, and so on. I think the other segment of people that would directly benefit from this would be biotech companies, um, especially early stage biotech companies that are uh, getting their seed rounds or their series A rounds that are pitching to uh, venture capitalists on the potential of their therapies, these companies will now have a real number to go pitch against um, instead of a hypothetical number that either they read in um, a report that was published in a literature 10, 10 years ago or a number that a, a, one hospital system at one part of the country gave them. Uh, more often than not, they would experience higher uh, um, numbers here on this dashboard than uh, from other sources. Uh, but I think they will benefit the most, uh, uh, in my opinion. And then there are also a lot of other fringe benefits that come out of knowing, knowing these numbers, um, especially from um, an advocacy standpoint and also uh, growing your disease community standpoint. Because if you only have 10 patients on your Facebook group, but then this uh, database shows that there are 100 potential patients worldwide, uh, then this opens up a very clear target for you as a patient community leader to go advocate and find these new patients and have them be included in your group. Wow. And I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of we just basic science around the genome. We, you know, we say we've mapped the genome. I think I saw a report earlier this year that said we finally actually mapped a genome, where before we had kind of a, a rough estimate using SNPs and, and piecing together a genome. We've actually ma mapped it. But this is going to show, but what's the variability around that? What are the, where are the places on the map? Where are the off ramps? Where are the the service stations? You know, if you you think of a map, you know it's it's much richer than just there's a line where a road is. Great, we've got the line where the road is. You're going to show all the different factors that are leading into that. It's actually it's it's quite elegant the way you've you've narrowed it down to this. So, where can people tap into this, and how's the project going? You know, and how are you measuring that? Um, so if you go to opentreatments.org, um, all spelled out, uh, there's a link on the top called Connect Wiki, um, where we publish everything that we work on online uh, in a publicly accessible wiki. Uh, that's the best place to, to see updates, uh, to understand more about the project. Uh, currently, we have um, two 
people working on the project right now. Um, one is a software engineer that's building a lot of the software components. Another one is a researcher that's developing the anonymization and the privacy algorithms. Um, we have one data provider signed up to send the data to us. We are in the process of signing up a few more data providers. Um, I've also signed a, a legal team to go build a, the data, data sharing agreement, which is going to be quite interesting. Um, so at this point, we are cranking along in our implementation. Um, and the real hurdle is understanding um, uh, the requirements of data providers and and, mask, and modifying our algorithms and our application to suit their requirements. Um, the data that they are sharing is quite sensitive. It is not even PHI, it is PII, just personally identifiable information. Um, and companies get very heavily fined and also um, a bad reputation in the marketplace if this data gets um, leaked. Uh, and so they are very careful about how and when to share this data outside. Uh, and one of the big problems that we currently have is Open Treatments Foundation is a nobody. Um, besides um, me and three other people that are on the board, uh, there are no full-time staff, uh, and even all of us are not full-time staff. Uh, we barely have funding to to build the first version of this project. Um, we don't have uh, a track record of delivering projects like this in the past. And so there's a lot of challenges that we have to navigate uh, when it comes to the real world of actually getting something done. Um, and I'm also battling with the uh, philosophical angle of actually building a social infrastructure. Uh, is open treatment going to be around for the next 100 years to actually see the infrastructure to fruition? Or are there institutions that have been around for long enough that have already ramped up um, in the rare disease space that would be better suited to taking the torch forward for the next decade or two decades or three decades? Uh, I am at this juncture where I'm talking to a few people trying to figure out what that um, looks like. Uh, but I think I think a succession plan would um, be in order in the next few months. Um, I think it is better if open treatments built and proved the concept out, paved the path for someone to go scale. Uh, and and, and uh, the person that would take on a project like this should have would already have a lot of incentives aligned to um, solve the same problem, like the prevalence of the incidence problem, um, because open treatments is built in a way that there is no value in the data that we hold. And so if you think from a, a, a company standpoint, open treatments would be a cost center. Uh, we would just be losing money if you were to be putting people on this. You can, there's no way you can monetize just the data that we gather here or the platform we build. And so you already have to be an institution that is aligned with the problem, with the mission that we are after. Um, and if we find such an institution and they are willing to take it forward, then great. I think that would be uh, a fantastic um, end game. Uh, and if we don't find them, we will continue to germinate the Connect project here as much as we can and, and continue, continue to scale it. Uh, and so at this point, the, the big challenge that we are battling is um, that of trust um, and that of longevity of the Open Treatments Foundation. The technical idea is quite innovative, 
you know, being able to anonymize people in a way you can't go back and, and being able to collect data everywhere that way. And, but the trust issue is there and the trust of what are we going to do with it? Where are we going with it next? And the fact that, as you just said, this would be seen as a cost center in any big organization. Why should we jump on? Um, so very, very interesting in the challenges you've come to face. So how can others get involved if somebody listening to this happens to be one of these data providers? How are they going to connect with you? Um, yeah, opentreatments.org has uh, my contact information and uh, directly email me. Um, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody that is interested in contributing to the project. Um, one of the differences from uh, my last uh, execution or the, the first version of Open Treatments Project was uh, I am not taking volunteers at this point. Um, I'm only taking paid staff. Um, and so if someone is um, interested in you know, doing contract software development or, or other activities with Open Treatments Foundation, reach out to me. Happy to talk. I think you might find some takers there. It sounds very, very interesting. And I can imagine a number of people coming in and, and offering some ideas and new insights on it and on the, on the approach that you're taking. So I want to thank you for all you're doing here. I'm listening to you and, and, and getting to know you over these past three years and getting to celebrate Raga's fourth birthday. I'm, I'm watching you grow and I'm watching you, you know, take on a a very philosophical point of view. I'm going to change social structure. That's way different than, than where Sonnet started. Um, and it's just fantastic and fascinating to watch. And so I just, I thank you for, you know, although Raga is only 10 in the world, what you're working on is helping millions of families affected by rare diseases and other genetic, genetically caused diseases. And before we go, I just wanted to make a special announcement for our listeners. We're going to be at Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit in sunny San Diego on September 12th to the 14th. We will be part of Podcaster Alley, and we'll have a couple of exciting things planned. First, we are inviting all our previous guests to come together for a bit of a meetup. You can come by and meet the people behind the stories you've heard here on Raising Rare. Secondly, we're going to be recording episodes live. There'll even be a chance for you to come by and be part of the podcast. So keep your eyes and your ears open for more information coming soon. And thanks for listening.